Welcome to another edition of the BrownZone.com Zone Coverage Podcast. My name is Andy Bullbarch, and as always, I am joined by Scott Petrek, Browns beat reporter for the Chronicle, Telegram, Medina Gazette, and of course, BrownZone.com. Scott, great to have you back in the great Buckeye State, and for the first time in a little over a month, my friend, we get to recap a Browns victory. How about that? I know, not used to it. Yeah, something we'll have to get hopefully get used to here as we get closer to the end of the season. But let's begin, Scott, by recapping this Browns win, a 1916 victory on Sunday over the Buffalo Bills. As we mentioned, the first Browns win in a little over a month. What were your three major takeaways from the win on Sunday? I think I'd start with the fact that they got that win. I'm not saying they're going to make a playoff run, right, because they'd have to go either 7-1 and or 8-0 the rest of the way, but they needed this win, and I think it gives them a chance to save their season. It might even give Freddie Kitchens a chance to save his job. Um, you know, I don't know how premature that is, but I think that was big, right? They're going to have to pile up some wins for everyone to feel good about the season, for everyone to feel good about Freddie Kitchens. So that was step one. Then I think you look at the return of Kareem Hunt and what he and Nick Chubb were able to do together and separately I think it has the potential to change this offense, and to change how defenses approach this Cleveland offense. And I think that if they do go on a run, I think that will be crucial to what they're able to do because those two guys together, it was pretty it was impressive, and I think it could be special. And then thirdly, and we'll talk about all these things a little bit more, but thirdly is the fact that they were stuffed on the goal line so often, but yet, and that's a major storyline from the game. But yet, in the final drive, we're able to score a touchdown. Yeah, they didn't get to the goal line, but they got to the red zone. And we know the red zone's been an issue. We know the red zone was the reason they lost at Denver the week before. And to get back down there again, and for Baker Mayfield to find Richard Higgins for that winning touchdown, you know, maybe it was just an isolated incident, but it also has a chance to be a stepping stone and show some resilience from this team had so many struggles in the red zone to finally get it done when it mattered the most. We'll also talk about differences in Baker Mayfield from this week to last. You alluded to the red zone struggles. We'll certainly talk about those. What's going on with Antonio Callaway? And, of course, we will also get into Thursday night's matchup against the Pittsburgh Steelers. But, Scott, I want to get back to Baker Mayfield because I I think when you look at those overall numbers, you can't help but be impressed. That was the first time all year that the Buffalo Bills had allowed two passing touchdowns in a game this season. To give you an idea as to the kind of competition he was up against, what were some of the major differences you saw in Baker Mayfield as opposed to last week and in previous weeks? Well, I I think he's feeling more comfortable. And I think we talked about this last week. I thought I'd seen a timid Baker, even against Denver, where he was afraid to pull the trigger. He didn't throw the late ball down the sideline to Odell on that fateful fourth and fourth. Well, they opened the game taking a shot to Odell. They had a shot to Odell in the fourth quarter. Now, they didn't connect on either of them, you know, long passes down the right sideline. But the fact that they took those shots, I liked. And the fact that they came closer to connecting on the second one, it went off Odell's right hand. There was some coverage there, but it was a good throw. The first one, Baker overthrew him. I just like that mindset. And I think Baker's doing a better job, and he has for weeks now, of hanging in the pocket. In the beginning of the season, he was bailing too early. He's gotten better in that area. Now, everything's not perfect. I didn't think his eye, you know, he talked about his eyes being right, knowing where to go with the ball and knowing 
how to go through his reads and progressions. I didn't think he was great on that against Denver. It looked better to me against Buffalo. Um, he's gone two straight games without a turnover. That doesn't mean he's been perfect because he's had a couple interceptions dropped. You know, he threw one in a double coverage for Odell against Buffalo, and it should have been an interception. It wasn't. But when you talk about all how he got unlucky early in the season with some of the tipped interceptions and the Callaway goal line one should have been a touchdown turning into an interception against San Francisco, maybe he was due for some breaks. And maybe if you get a couple of those breaks, you make a couple of big throws, right? He made a good touchdown pass to Jarvis, a good touchdown pass to Higgins. And then, to me, the best play he made all day was a 24-yarder to Landry before the Higgins go-ahead touchdown, the winning touchdown. Pressure's coming. He's going to get hit by three guys, and he lofts it up. Winds up being a perfectly placed ball. Trust Jarvis Landry to get there. Landry makes a great adjustment. He's looking over his right shoulder. Then he looks over his left, makes kind of a sliding catch. I just saw some positive plays from Baker. And I, and I did think we have to keep this in mind, especially with this matchup against the Steelers. They play, the Browns have played some really good defenses lately. Denver's a good defense. Buffalo's a good defense. Pittsburgh's a good defense. You can even go back to right, the Patriots are a great defense. Seattle's a pretty good defense. The Niners are a big-time defense. So it's been a tough stretch for him. And while I don't remove a lot of blame from him, I do think you have to take that into account for why there have been struggles. And if he can come through this and have another good game against Pittsburgh, then the schedule lightens up a little bit. And you play the Miamis, you play the Bengals, maybe Baker can really kind of find a comfort zone and he starts to look like the Baker everyone expected. In there, you talked about the red zone woes, and they did continue on Sunday. However, they had a sensational red zone possession when it really mattered the most at the end of the game. Hearing some things throughout the week, Scott, it seemed like Freddie Kitchens, Baker Mayfield, and company tried to simplify things, and they tried to practice that throughout the week when they got into the red zone. You got the feeling that maybe they dumped it down too much at times. Well, what was your major takeaway from what you saw on yeah. Sunday when they got into the red zone? Well, it's interesting because obviously the first trip down there is the first trip inside the five. They ran eight plays from inside the two, one from the two, seven from the one. And they get stuffed. And according to ESPN, there are a lot of sports, but it hadn't happened in, I want to say, 26 years. So it's mind-boggling how you can be that close and not score, right? I mean, there's got to be a defensive breakdown. You sneak it. Something happens. So they didn't. So the, And then they got back down there again, got to the one, Shovel lost two yards. They run an incomplete shovel. They're going to go for it on fourth and three. They get lucky that Chris Hubbard jumps at right tackle, forces Freddie to get a hold of himself and kick the field goal because I don't think there's any way you go for it there on fourth and three, and it's kind of been overlooked a little bit because they had the false start. They kicked the field goal like they should have. Winds up being the difference in the game. But having said all that, you got to get in, right? I mean, that's the overall overarching thing. You have to get in there. Having said that, I was okay with the approach. You throw three times to Odell Beckham Jr., who had only been targeted three times in the red zone all year, and he draws two pass interferences, and then the cornerback makes a real good play on a fade. The throw's fine. The guy rakes the ball out of Odell's arms. Okay, so I like going to Odell down there, and two out of three plays were quote-unquote successful. Then the other five times, you give to Nick Chubb, who's been your best player. So I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with that philosophy. We can quibble about particular play calls, but I think it comes down to the offensive line didn't block well enough. And that's a tough spot, right? Buffalo's a big defense. They're a tough defense. 
they got a bunch of guys there lined up saying, hey, we're not going to let you run on us. But the line's got to do a better job. Uh, to me, that's the bottom line. You know, one of the plays, Nick Chubb had an opening. The safety met him in the hole, and the safety took him down. So, you know, you have to credit the defense a little bit. But to me, the bottom line is I liked that they got the ball to their two, two of their best players, Odell and Nick Chubb. I didn't like the blocking. And I think the learning, what you can learn from that is maybe you go with Chubb and Hunt. Because on that first failed sequence, they weren't in the game together. It was all Chubb. They went a lot of one receiver, jumbo package, one running back. Maybe just the presence of Kareem Hunt changes the defense enough, gives the offense enough space that Chubb can work or Hunt can work. So I think that's what will be tweaked this week. Um, but, you know, I would, it would have been the story of the game, right? The goal line failures. And I think even if you add on to that, just around the goal line, Baker takes a sack for safety. Josh Allen fumbles and it hops forward and their lineman gets it on the one-yard line. Like, it felt like the game was going to be lost on the goal line. And the fact that it wasn't because of that final drive, I think that says something about the Browns. Now, it will say a lot more if they're able to build on that momentum and beat Pittsburgh on Thursday night. And we'll come back around to that game on Thursday night against the Steelers, which is clearly a very, very big one for all the obvious reasons. But if we could stick with that last possession where Baker Mayfield found Hollywood Higgins, because Hollywood Higgins, you know, throughout the course of the week on social media, people were having some fun, you know, playing the missing in action posters, putting those kinds of things <laughs> up there saying, where in the world has this guy been? Why aren't the Browns using him more? Do you feel like he certainly bought himself some more tar- targets or some more, t- more time based on the way he played on Sunday? Probably. Now, that was the only target he got, though, right? So he was out there, I want to say, 31 plays, 33 plays. And that was the only time the ball went in his direction. So I think the people that are obsessed with Richard Higgins are a little off base. I understand that he had a good season last year. I understand that he's an NFL player. To me, he's not a difference maker. To me, it'd be silly to run your offense around Richard Higgins. The ball needs to go to Chubb, Beckham, Landry, Hunt. And then if it finds its way to Higgins every once in a while, that's fine. He just needs to continue to be in the right space at the right time, right place in the right time, which he was on the biggest play of the game. So good for him there, I think, and we'll talk about Callaway a little bit here in a second, but I think the Callaway benching for, it sounds like he showed up late for the game, for disciplinary reasons, that opens the door for Higgins because Higgins kind of built his reputation on reliability. And maybe that's taking a little bit of a hit this year because he had the injury and then there's some back and forth with the coaching staff when he was ready to play, when he wasn't ready to play. But I think he does have the opportunity to take advantage of Callaway's negligence last week, his unavailability. So I don't think you can expect a ton from Higgins, but he'll be out there in certain packages. I think Kareem Hunt is going to take away from whoever was going to be that third receiver just because he can line up as a receiver and in the slot a little bit, and that'll take some snaps away. But I think if Higgins plays 25 to 35 snaps, you know, maybe not even that many, 15 to 25 snaps, gets two or three balls a game, that sounds right to me. He just needs to take advantage when he gets the ball. You had talked about Antonio Callaway. We've got to bring this up because – 
This just seems like a guy, Scott, who's really running out of chances. Now, we've heard the reports that he showed up late to the game on Sunday, and I think any fan that hears that has immediately run out of patience with him. So he's a very talented player. There's no question about that. And when the Browns drafted him, you know, a lot of the experts mentioned that, yes, this is a gamble. Sure, he's talented, but it comes with a little bit of baggage. How many more chances do you think Callaway's going to get with the Browns? Hey, that's a great question. I, I think I think he's probably blown his last big chance, right? I think the drug suspension to start the year was the final big mistake he can make. Now we could argue whether or not showing up a little a little bit late for a game counts as a big mistake or not. Obviously, the Browns don't think so because they haven't cut him, right? And Freddie said it's a it was a one game punishment. Um, you know, we we talk about showing up for the late for the game. He didn't show up at one thirty. Right, I mean, they had to make the inactives by 11.30, and somewhere in that final window is when they decided to inactivate him. So I don't know if the rule is they have to beat the game at 11, and he showed up at 11.20. You know, I don't know those specifics, but the fact is he was supposed to be at the stadium at a certain time, wasn't there. I saw him warm up on the field, like right after the inactives came out at 11.30, he was running around warming up, but they'd already said he wasn't going to play. And that's a disciplinary action, and he was part of the game plan. So that's a late change to make, right? It's not like a guy rolls his ankle in pregame warm-ups. He just doesn't show up on time. And obviously that's a terrible sign. And taken on its own, you can get past it. But when you add it to all the off-the-field stuff he had when he was at the University of Florida, the trouble he got into last year when he got that car stop and he had, you know, the – marijuana in his car, you know, a little bit of it, and it wound up not being a big deal. You know, a lot of stuff got thrown away, but he still got in trouble right early on during his NFL career. He failed the drug test with the combine. He fails, you know, he winds up having a drug suspension this year. So there's a lot going on there. And if you add on top of that, I don't think he, I don't think he lines up the right way a lot of times. I don't think Baker trusts him to run the right routes. Uh, I don't love the lackadaisical approach that he has. So, yeah, I love his speed. I love his explosion. You saw it on a bubble screen against Denver. He took it and he ran about 40 yards. But it's just not consistent enough. And there will be a time when John Dorsey says, you know what, it's enough. Enough is enough. Um, And it might be the next stop. It might be the next time, right, the one more incident, whether it's late to practice, late to meeting, late to game, whatever that is, that might be, the final straw, but I, I do know that Dorsey's enamored with his talent. I felt like the coaching staff was enamored with his talent because they put him right back in when he got off the suspension, and they played him a good amount. He was a number three guy, um, but maybe this latest incident makes the coaching staff think twice and say, you know what, we really can't trust this guy. We've got all these other pieces. Let's not let him screw it up for everybody else. Well, let's use that to dive right into Thursday's game against the Steelers. Do you expect him to be a big part of the game plan on Thursday night? I don't. The question to me is whether he's active or not. You know, I mean, Freddie said it was a one-game punishment, and if you look at the receiving core, he's one of your four best receivers. Having said that, Kaderil Hodge is a better special teamer and has been working into the offense a little bit. Damian Ratley is a better special teamer than Callaway. You know, and he only played one snap. Sunday, and he, that was his change. When Callaway went down, 
rally came up. So that'll be the, the decision they have to make Thursday night is, all right, his calories shown us enough that we activate him, deactivate Ratley, and then maybe you only have a package of eight plays for the guy. And you think you can ha- you think there's something there that you can take advantage of. But, you know, and I, I like the idea, and I'm not a big punishment guy, but I kind of like the idea of making it a lasting punishment and not just be a blip. And I think having to sit down two straight games or having a really reduced role for the second game might serve him well. Maybe it'll be a wake-up call, although I'm not convinced anything will get through to Antonio Callaway at this point. Well, it's a short week to get ready for a team that I think a lot of people looked at at the second week of the season and said, you know what, this is a year the Browns can not only get the Steelers once, maybe they can get them twice, but boy, to their credit, and I think this says a lot about just how incredibly well-coached and how well-run that franchise is. I mean, they're playing some pretty good ball right now. I mean, you look at all that they have lost over the last couple of years. Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, of course, not having Ben Roethlisberger since the first week of the season. It's pretty incredible that the Steelers are where they are right now. What kinds of challenges await the Browns on Thursday night? Well, it's a huge challenge. And the Steelers, to me, the fact that they started 0-3 and 1-4, and and now they won four in a row and they hold a second wild card spot in the AFC playoff race. Speaks so much to, you mentioned Mike Tomlin, and yes, he deserves a ton of credit for keeping that team together. But also the, also the Steelers organization as a whole, the culture that they have, and that's so hard to pinpoint what culture is. And we talked about it, I wrote about it last week after the Denver loss, and all of that side show stuff that went around, that surrounded that Denver loss. But Pittsburgh just has this stability, and they feel like it doesn't matter what happens, they're going to win games. And it's a credit to them. It's a credit to ownership for the last 70 years. It's a credit to their general manager. You know, they go trade for Micah Fitzpatrick. Everybody's killing the trade thinking they give up what could be a top-five pick for, you know, a defensive back, a safety. And it turns out that he's been their best player since they traded for him. As of now, the pick's going to be in the 20s, so it's not nearly as valuable. And it just shows you that they didn't give up on the season. And so many teams in today's NFL are ready to give up on the season. Tank for two, uh, you know, all that stuff. We saw LeBron do it for two years. And the fact that that does, isn't part of the Steelers' mindset, I love that. So having said that, when we talk about the challenges Thursday night, it all starts with their defense. They, they've had 14 turnovers, 14 takeaways in this four-game winning streak. They had four Sunday against the Rams. T.J. Watt is a beast coming off the edge, and the Browns' tackles, Chris Hubbard and Greg Robinson, are really going to be stressed trying to block him. The Browns better figure out a way to neutralize him at some point, whether it's keeping a tight end in, keeping a back in, because you can't let him wreck the game. Fitzpatrick has got two straight games where he's got to return for a touchdown. He's always around the ball. Joe Hayden is playing well. So it's all about that they're not giving up points. They're taking the ball away. And then let's Mason Rudolph, the quarterback for Big Ben, just manage the game. And I went back and I watched a couple games yesterday of the Steelers. And he's not great, but he stands in the pocket. He doesn't get afraid when there's a lot of traffic around him. He's not a scrambler, so maybe it gives the Browns a chance to go sack him. But he manages the game. They haven't turned the ball over the last four weeks. 
So the Browns are going to be have to be disciplined. This is a team like Buffalo, like Denver, plays low scoring games, plays strong defense, and the Browns have been better the last two weeks. No turnovers, only nine penalties. They need to do that again because if you start turning it over against Pittsburgh, that's how they beat you. You talked about the culture of this Steelers team, and I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast, they're Browns fans, and they may not want to hear this, but, I mean, this certainly is a, a, a top-notch organization, and it has been for many, many years. And I, I want to go back to the Antonio Brown thing. I mean, how smart does this franchise look now for getting rid of him at the time? I mean, they were raked over the coals for trading him away for a draft pick that people just kind of scoffed at. But look at how much better they are now without him. And look at what Antonio Brown has become since leaving the Steelers. And, I mean, you could say some of the th- same things about Le'Veon Bell. I mean, they didn't have him at all last year. The running game didn't seem to miss much of a beat. But they really have adhered to that next man up mentality. And it's one of those things you can't help but admire, even if you're a Browns fan. And I know it drives a lot of Browns fans nuts because the Steelers have always been the main rival. But, look, that's, I think, what most organizations aspire to be. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I think the Antonio Brown thing is so interesting. I think he was a six-on draft pick. So it shows great scouting. Then they develop him into arguably the best receiver in the league. Then he becomes such a head case that they part with him at the perfect time. So, you know, I, I think it is. I think it shows that they know what they're doing. I think it shows that they stick to principles. Not that they don't waver at all. Not that, you know, they didn't take some hits for how they handle those things, Le'Veon and with Antonio. But when you take a step back and you look at how they do stuff over a five-year period or a 10-year period or a 20-year period, it's hard to quibble with what the Steelers do. And, you know, it's... Jimmy Haslam was a minority owner there for a while. And you would hope that he had learned some things from being around that organization. Because once you establish that you can win year in and year out, and you trust who you hire, and you trust the players you have, that continuity and stability, it just breeds success. And that's something that the Browns have been obviously searching for, obviously have not been able to establish. And it's going to be decades before you could say, okay, they're on the same ground as the Steelers in that sense. But that is the example you strive for in those ways. And, and I find it fascinating that at the beginning of the year, everybody wanted to say the Browns had the most talent, which they might, in the division, and that it was their division to win. They were the favorite to win the division. And right now, halfway through the season, you look at more than halfway through the season, you look at where Pittsburgh and Baltimore are. And it was foolish to think that they wouldn't put up a huge fight and just let the Browns take over the division. And both teams have proven that, and I think the Steelers might be even more impressive given what they went through at the start of this year. Yeah, there's no question about that. No question about it at all. Well, before we get into your golf shot of the week, and I know people are thinking, wait a minute, it's snowing out, it's freezing, there's actually a golf shot of the week. Oh, there is indeed a golf shot of the week. You had alluded to Pittsburgh's speed off the edge defensively and how that's really going to challenge the Browns' offensive tackles. Outside of that particular matchup or those two particular matchups, are there any other individual matchups that are really fascinating to you on the surface for Thursday night? Well, I want to see how the Steelers try to handle Odell Beckham Jr., you know, I don't know that Hayden can't run with him. Do they put 
the opposite corner on him. So they play a lot of zone, which means Odell can have a bunch of underneath catches and then try to break some tackles. I want to see how that develops. I want to see how the Steelers try to adjust to Kareem Hunt and Mitch Chubb in the backfield. I think the Browns are only going to expand the packages, the plays for him, the playing time for Kareem Hunt. And I think that can, like I've said earlier, I think that can be a difference for this team over the second half of the season. And then Miles Garrett. You know, he had a couple pressures and a couple quarterback hits against Buffalo. But it's been a couple games now without a sack. Does he show back up again? You know, I think he likes the spotlight. He likes the prime time games. I think the Steelers' offensive line is usually really good. But I think, I think it can be had. And I think Miles Garrett needs to do that. He needs to win those one-on-one matchups and go get Mason Rudolph because he's going to be available in the pocket. You beat the left tackle or the right tackle, Miles Garrett can get to Rudolph and bring him down for a sack that changes the game, maybe get that strip sack that the Browns have been dying to get, right? They haven't had many takeaways on defense. So those are the things I'm watching, and those are the things the Browns need to take advantage of if they're going to win this game. Good stuff. Well, certainly looking forward to your coverage of the game on Thursday night, Scott. But before we let you go, you did some golfing since our last conversation, believe it or not. So what golf shot or golf shots of the week do you have in store for us? Yeah, it was cool. I stayed in Denver an extra couple of days. My uncle lives up there, and we were able to get out on Tuesday. So it's a week ago. I'm sitting there recording this. I'm looking at the snow here in Cleveland coming down. And it was 57 and sunny outside of Denver. I played in shorts. Uh, the backdrop were the Rocky Mountains. It's it's a really it's so scenic and it's really a nice play to, place to play golf. Just out there in general, and we played at the University of Colorado University Golf Course. It was a good golf course. Um, I didn't have my clubs. I'm going to use that as an excuse for not playing particularly well. I scored okay on the front, played terrible on the back. Um, but I'll just give you my first shot of the day using my uncle's clubs. I hit a drive, and I don't know, I'm not sure it went any farther than it usually does because I think the cold weather kind of took away from the altitude. You know, the altitude is supposed to add 10 or 15%. I think the cold weather took the ball from flying that far. But having said that, in the altitude, the ball felt like it stayed in the air forever. So I hit this drive. Um, I'm not even sure it made the ferry. It might have been just off the ferry. But it was a good looking drive, and it stayed in the air forever. And it felt like mountain golf to me. So it was great to get out there. I hope it wasn't the last time I'll play this year, but, you know, looking at the snow, it very well could have been. Yeah, I'm beginning to think that it might have been. But you know what? The sun's supposed to come out here over the next couple of days. Maybe it'll melt a little bit of this, and maybe some of the tracks here in the area will open up for one last weekend or two so we can have another golf shot conversation before we get to the end of the season. Scott, always a pleasure. Thanks for stopping by, and we'll do this again next week. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it, bud. Thanks, Scott. Again, Scott Petrak, Browns beat reporter with the Chronicle Telegram, the Medina Gazette, and, of course, brownzone.com. That'll wrap up this edition of the brownzone.com zone coverage podcast. For Scott Petrak, this is Andy Bullbarch saying thank you so much for tuning in, and we will talk to all of you again next week.